Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Trashy Divorces, y'all. Welcome to another scintillating week of Trash Candy. My name is Stacy. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us. Welcome new Trash Pandas out there. Thanks for coming back if you are a returning listener. We've got two good stories this week. You you gooped yours up pretty good. I am bringing you the trashy divorce, the which is not at all trashy. Trashy, yeah. Of Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin, who brought to all of us the term conscious uncoupling. Yes. And this week, Stacy, you have... I have um, just an American hero, uh, Dorothy Dandridge, just a pioneer for like black artists, but her life was very, very sad. So look forward to that. <laughs> Pulling this week's theme together under the Al Green classic from the 1972 Let's Stay Together album, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Yeah. It seemed like the fitting It really does. I mean I it's song to go with. Yeah, I I feel like Gwyneth is well situated to answer that question and Dorothy Dandridge never ever could how do you mend a broken heart? Before we start the episode, let's go ahead and bring out our magic mirror and give some big shout outs and thanks to our new patrons this week. You can check us out on patreon.com. Look up Trashy Divorces. We have 358 episodes over there, Stacy. That's, that is why I feel tired most of the time, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Who joined us to hear some of that fun this week? Sure. Thank you so much to Nikki B, Kathy S, Jackie F, Joanna, Amber W., Sandra J, Jamie S, and Ashley A. Kathy B, Holly W, Renee G, Savannah L, Natalie H, Amber R, Zeph MG, and Renee D. Thank you, thank you. We also have a few new super supporters to shout out this week. And one, Courtney B, thank you, thank you, gave us a super good tip. Y'all, September, Gynecological Awareness Month. Get your bitch checked. Get your bitch checked. Bits are important. Let's get them checked out. September. Gynecological Awareness Month. Let's do it. But Let's it can honor be. September with your bits. Yep. We have a few more super supporters as well. Thank you, Courtney B., for the reminder of that. And welcome to the Trash Candy Connoisseur Gang. Kimberly, Grion W., and Krista T. as well joined our super supporters. And something fun that the Trash Candy Connoisseurs are getting. Do you want to tell everybody about the hangout sesh yeah we uh are doing sort of just hang out live from our living room uh one time a month so far and we had one last week and it was lovely and uh, we're looking forward to them we've definitely been adding new benefits to every level come check us out over on patreon if you need more trash candy this week what happened we talked about loretta young and the child that she had with Clark Gable. Ooh, we mm-hmm. went down a Billy Clyde tuggle from All My Children rabbit hole about what he has to do with the line from a Jimmy Buffett song. Ooh, the trashy divorces of Carmen Miranda as well. Oh, and I did a whole deep dive into the tragedy and triumph that was the life of our most profane angel, Carol Lombard. That was a great story. 
Yep. All right. Well, with that think, said. Yeah, I think that's the business. I think perhaps it's time to move on to the trashy divorces of the week. Let's see if we can figure out how to mend a broken heart. I think to do that, we have to go, go, go. So, Alicia, you have, uh, I don't know, kind of a, a goopy love story for us here today. Is that right? I have never been more frustrated <laughs> writing for a Sunday episode ever. You have mentioned that a few times this, this week. This is Trashy Divorces. It's our <laughs> brand. And for all of the trash that you may conjure up about Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin, which is not a lot, their divorce, not trashy. Big reveal. It's entirely untrashy. Kind of the exact opposite is true. Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin are a terrific example of how to break up well with grace and kindness and in a way that builds good foundations for your individual future growth, as well as the growth of your family. This is the couple that introduced the world in a much larger way to the concept of conscious uncoupling. I recall that, yeah. This is a book in theory by psychoanalyst Kathleen Woodward Thomas. This is her work, and what a foundation, like, to learn a new way. There are, because I've gone through the conscious uncoupling thing for research, there are a lot of shades in this to one of my favorites, Getting the Love You Want by Dr. Harville Hendricks. So for newer listeners, when you hear me talk about Imago Theory, that is the source book, Dr. Harville Hendricks, Getting the Love You Want. But Kathleen Woodward Thomas, Conscious Uncoupling, same kind of concept. Breakups suck. And when you break up, it's worth some self-examination to go, hey, what didn't work about that? And how can I ask myself to do better in the future? Humans are made to bond. Breakups suck. They, they just do. They do. They do. And in all contexts friendships that end like it doesn't have to be a romantic thing like breakups suck suck so whatever trash you may have this is we're not going to talk about goop really in this story more the pity <laughs> maybe in patreon this week but maybe. this is trashy divorces and y'all all have a lot of feelings about this couple individually and as a couple there are a lot of feelings Personally, I find Gwyneth Paltrow sort of like annoyingly self-actualized. Like, I feel like it takes a certain amount of wealth to have done enough therapy to be Gwyneth Paltrow. That is most assuredly one of the feelings that people have. Yeah, but like literally, if I am flipping channels and she is on the screen, I will stop and watch whatever. I love her as an She's actress. She's super compelling mm -hmm. as an actress. She's so good. So I... And Chris Martin. I kind of have a little crush on Chris Martin. Let's talk about it. Let's talk okay. about these two. Gwyneth Sky Paltrow. Captain and the World of Tomorrow underrated flick. Oh, my. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. She's a Libra gal, born September 27th, 1972. And for real, like, what don't we know about Gwyneth Paltrow? Like, Let's pretend I know nothing. Okay. <laughs> Gwyneth is the daughter of producer and director Bruce Paltrow. And legendary actress Blythe Danner. Okay. She grows up in California, but they summer in Massachusetts every year because mom is acting in a theater festival. 
Are they near the Kennedy compound by any chance? Like, I'm just imagining. They have a home in the Hamptons. Okay. The, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. Okay. She has a younger brother. <clears throat> Gwyneth grows up with a parent always at home. Like, mom and dad both turn down respective work to have a parent at home with the kids at all times. I mean, they're growing up in Malibu. Sure. So there's some pretty distinguished friends of the family. Sure. Michael Douglas, Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. who will end up eventually casting her as young Wendy in Hook. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm sure, like, Uncle Steve drops by on the rag. Like, <laughs> here's something a little fun. Before we get Gwyneth into the acting thing, the family will move to New York City when Gwyneth is, like, 13. And Blythe was like, Bruce promised me we could do this, and I held him to the promise. I wanted my kids to grow up in a city with all of what you can get in a city and not in the saturated world of L.A. So Gwyneth gets enrolled at Spence, which is this exclusive girls preparatory school. I'm stunned. There's a chorus group. It's called the Triple Trio. There are nine girls in that group that do three-part harmony. When Gwyneth Paltrow is a senior, she will audition freshman Carrie Washington to replace her in Triple Trio. Wow. And apparently Carrie Washington is fantastic when she's 15 to I all have no Carrie Washington. Yeah, I have no doubt. Oh. It, it's weird because I feel like Gwyneth has been famous for so long. It's weird that they're only a few years apart in age difference then. Oh. Because cool. I feel like Carrie Washington only became like... Household name famous, probably with Scandal. But she was working continuously yeah, all through then. You ready yeah. for the other thing, uh, the other connection I didn't know about? Maya Rudolph is a mm. friend of Gwyneth's from high school. They do all kinds of running around and rule breaking together, but Gwyneth never gets caught. She tells her mom years later, because Gwyneth was like me as a teenager, you have plan A, which is what you tell your parents you're doing, and then there's really plan B, which is what you're really doing, and Plan C is how you cover for all the plans. I love knowing that your mother does sometimes listen to our show. So there you go. Eh. Great work. Well, <laughs> Gwyneth, like me, uh, eldest kid and all, put a note on the pillow. So if her parents ever woke up like, where did you sneak out and go? She was covered, which I thought was kind of an eldest child sort of indication. Anyway. Sorry, Mom and Dad, I never broke the rules. I was Fair. always home. I wish that Maya Rudolph was one of my oldest friends. I kind of feel like she is, to Isn't be honest. amazing? Mm-hmm. Okay, so back to Gwyneth. Hook happens, and Gwyneth Paltrow like, just wants to act. And she is starring in a stage production of Picnic, and her parents go see it. Because Gwyneth has started like her first year of college. And her dad, after seeing her in Picnic, is like, yep. You really totally should quit college and do the acting thing, but we're not supporting you. We'll support you. If you need to make rent, we'll make sure that you've got rent paid, but we're not going to supplement any kind of social lifestyle. Okay. If you want to act. So they will support her. (laughs) Well, like if you were having trouble making rent, but we're not just going to give you a bunch of cash to go fuck off in Hollywood. So Gwyneth gets a job waitressing. She's going on auditions. And her career is taking off, right? So some previous Trashy Divorces alums to mention here. I can only imagine Gwyneth Paltrow's Rolodex. That's all I'm saying. Just let's skip through this. She'll work with Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid on Flesh and Bone. Huh. She'll work with Nicole Kidman and Alec Baldwin and Malice. Huh. Wow, that's a twofer. <laughs> getting us to seven with Brad Pitt. Oh, sure. Who Gwyneth will start dating. Yes. They date for like three years. Yes, very famously. 
So like 1995, they start dating. They go on vacation together. There's some private balcony pictures that Brad Pitt actually sues the European press over and wins that lawsuit. But the I like it's like looking at F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald again. They're the golden twins. Like Brad and Gwyneth together are just so shiny and yeah, golden and were. that uh sort of look, that sort of image, but the press is all over them. Which there's part of that if you're going into a public career you take. But Gwyneth is kind of famously private. And I think probably you're going to get a lot of the reason here. So let's go ahead and talk about the ick part and the skeeviness that is Harvey Weinstein. Mm. Harvey Weinstein wants Gwyneth for Emma and the pallbearer. But sometime, some evening in 1995, there's an attempted assault. So I'm going to let Gwyneth Paltrow tell you about this one. This is from a piece in Vanity Fair written up about Gwyneth's appearance on Howard Stern. And again, all sources are linked on our TrashyDivorces.com website. In an interview with Howard Stern on Wednesday, the actress recounted when Weinstein allegedly sexually harassed her in a hotel room in 1995, asking her to give him a massage. Weinstein has denied the allegation. Paltrow, who was dating Pitt at the time, told the New York Times back in October that she immediately told her boyfriend what happened. Pitt later confronted Weinstein in an event and told him to stay away from her. She said a representative for Pitt confirmed the story to the Times. In her interview with Stern, Paltrow shared a few more details about how the confrontation went down. Quote, I told Pitt right away and I was very shaken by the whole thing, she said of the incident. Later, Pitt decided to confront Weinstein when all three were attending the opening of Hamlet on Broadway. Oh my God. It was like the equivalent of throwing him against the wall energetically, Paltrow recalled. It was so fantastic. He leveraged his fame and power to protect me at a time when I didn't have fame or power yet. He said, if you ever make her feel uncomfortable again, I'll kill you or something like that. I mean, that's a really big deal given how powerful Harvey Weinstein was at that point like he was mega important in hollywood and so brad pitt you gotta love the scene where like brad pitt is beating up harvey weinstein at the opening of hamlet it's nice harvey weinstein although should have been called out much longer ago than he was and more often and more often early and often dethroned long 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 ago in 1996 They continue to date. They're in Argentina for his uh, seven days in Tibet. They get engaged. And whatever attention the Golden Twins have on them before, it is amplified times a thousand. Within six months, the engagement is off. Brad and Gwen, out. During this time, we have one of my favorite movies ever, Sliding Doors. I I will never turn off Sliding Doors. I love it. There you go. There's Emma. There's Shakespeare in Love. Which is, that's one of mine. Shakespeare in Love. Endlessly watchable. Endlessly watchable. Well, in filming Shakespeare in Love, she's also there with her new boyfriend, another Trashy Divorces alum, Ben Affleck. Hmm. This is, her Rolodex is quite expansive. Ben and Gwen are kind of quiet when they're filming, but these two date like a year. But he's not the one either. Now, in the filming of The Talented Mr. Ripley... Gwyneth is, I forget, Italy, Spain, Italy, I think. 
Gwyneth Paltrow's granddad, Buster, is diagnosed with liver cancer. So she's devastated. But she's filming, and there's not any, like... Yeah. So it's already a tough time. She's filming. She's feeling depressed and feeling kind of helpless about it. But six weeks after this, Gwyneth gets the news that her beloved father, she's a daddy's girl, that Bruce has been diagnosed with throat cancer. Yikes. And... This is going to send Gwyneth kind of down a devastation spiral. That gets done filming. Gwyneth's going to be in duets directed by dad, as well as take him to the Oscars when she wins her best actress for Shakespeare in Love. Dad's going to hang in for a while. So in 2002, summer of that year, Gwyneth is planning her 30th birthday. She's going to take her friends and family on vacation to Italy. And it's going to be awesome. And... Mom is filming, so mom's not coming, but Bruce Paltrow is coming, and they're going to have a big party, and then Gwyneth and Bruce are going to go on a road trip through Italy, like a daddy-daughter, spend some time together kind of thing. So Gwyneth's birthday, September 27th, they have the party. Gwen and dad take off on the most magnificent road trip. Bruce develops pneumonia, and he'll pass away in Rome on October 3rd, wow. 2002 six days after a party Mm. like that's just sad yeah and losing a parent is a significant psychological stressor and it's sad it's just all sad so a few weeks after dad's passing Gwyneth's friend mary is like hey i have tickets for this cold play concert let's get out of the house see if we can shake the sadness off for a few hours mary's a good friend right Mm -hmm. okay so i'm gonna leave gwyneth paltrow parked at the trashy divorces depot Heading to the Coldplay concert in the fall of 2002. Okay. Let's meet Chris Martin. Christopher Anthony John Martin. He's a Pisces kid. March 2nd, 1977. He's the oldest of five kids. Four names, really. Four names. Everybody's got four names, apparently, in Britain. It's a thing. Oh. Uh, See? Okay, he's British. (laughs) (laughs) Mom is a music teacher. Dad's family is in the caravan and motorhome business. They're large vehicle salespeople. Yeah. Granddad founds this caravan and motorhome sales business in 1929. Also, another fun family tie here. The dude who campaigns for daylight savings time to be a thing. His name is William Willett. This is Chris Martin's great, great granddad. You bastard. (laughs) Like a well-to-do family, Chris goes to the proper schools and all that. Off to university. He has some nice flatmates. They're all sons of teachers, nice blokes. And they're like, we all like music and we're all sons of teachers. Let's make a band. It's 1996. Why not, right? Thus was born the sons of teachers. (laughs) Well, at first, their band name is the Pectorals Mm. with a Z, Hmm. with a Z. (laughs) Then they're called Starfish. And there's another band scooting around at the time that's called Coldplay. And this other band was like, want our names, mate? This band thing's tough. Good luck if you're going to do it. But these guys all like each other and seem to get along great as a band. And after graduation, they released their debut album in 2000. And the trajectory, like, takes off from there. Coldplay is a thing. Launch in 2000. On tour. Big success. Like, people really like Coldplay. It's fun. They're doing concert dates, making the music thing happen. Chris Martin has had a girlfriend before, but like one girlfriend before. So he's playing. 
the fall of 2002. There's Gwyneth, and it's love at first sight. He's smitten. She is, too. Chris Martin will say, like, I won the lottery. Like, whoa. I had one girlfriend, and now I'm dating Gwyneth Paltrow. Right. Like, whoa. And I think Chris Martin is just nice guy TM. He is an affable fellow, and he's charming. He's a, like, he, have a little crush on Chris Martin. <laughs> few things that I love about him before we get these kids together. Just a few little anecdotes. There's this one quote from him talking about Coldplay. He says, we rely more on enthusiasm than actual skill. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically and people will like it more. I mean, he's not wrong. Totally true. He's not wrong at all. Also, Coldplay plays a gig on Austin City Limits in 2005. And as they're... Prepping to do it, the producers are like, who do you want as a guest? And Chris Martin is like, uh, Michael Stipe. Michael Stipe is the guest that I want. And so here comes Michael Stipe singing Cold Swimming with Chris Martin at the uh, piano. Night Swimming. What did I say? Cold Swimming. Fuck. Which is Night Swimming by Coldplay. <laughs> <laughs> so here goes Michael Stipe. Also a model of how disease vectors. <laughs> singing Night Swimming. And Chris Martin's so cute. He's like, this is the best song ever written, in my opinion. And it's a beautiful version. And Michael Stipe gets done singing. And Chris Martin, in just this effusive joy on that last note, does this like little double fist pump. This was saved. This is why we still had a DVR. Because I would watch this little moment of a clip yeah you've made me I watch love, this a few times over the I years it. it is it, every bit as sweet and endearing and cute as you say mm-hmm. fell in love with chris martin and then right then i informed you that the internet exists and you can look that clip up you can't you can find the very end of it it cuts off during the cutest part but it is linked on the anyway okay back to the story these two they're smitten gwyneth chris the attraction is there they will get married december 2003 in santa barbara They go to Mexico on their honeymoon. And for people in the public eye, they do it very quietly. They are really, really private about their internal lives. Baby number one comes along in May 2004. Baby number two comes along in 2006. And Gwyneth Paltrow is acting less, momming more. She does go through a bout of postpartum depression, which is a real and significant thing. Let's make postpartum depression... More of a significant thing that we look at and support. The brave baby makers out there. The brave baby makers out there. That's it. Okay. 2008 will also be the beginning of what will become her lifestyle brand, Goop. Oh, no. It starts as a blog. Well, because she's traveled her whole life. Like, her parents traveled with her, and she knows the places to go in each city to do whatever. And so, kind of recovering from postpartum and sat down and just, like, these are I mean, the things I know about the city. Does it start out as like a woo-woo well, no. wellness thing? It starts as a blog, just travel tips and like recommendations and... Vagina shaming. It just, it grew into that later. Okay, this is not a podcast about goop. <laughs> but if I am paying $15,000 for a vibrator, it better be doing every bit of the work. Like remotely even, like <laughs> you could be in the next room. <laughs> I need you on my block. That is pricey. I digress. Okay, back to the story. Chris Martin is touring. There's music. He's daddying, and Gwyneth Paltrow is going to merge back into acting. She, uh, Robert Downey Jr. gets her in for the Iron Man series. Oh, yeah. 
Pepper Potts. That's it. Exquisite role. She will do country strong as well, but also get recruited back into the television head of 2010 Glee. Holly Holiday is her character, and she digs it. This is also the year that Gwyneth Paltrow knows that the marriage with Chris Martin is not what she wants. So like seven years, six, year, six years it's in? 2010, years? yeah. Yeah, like okay. seven years in. Now, getting to that feeling, like this is an easily relatable moment when you know internally that the relationship you're in is not the one you want. It's not the one that's going to be. You don't know when it's going to end, but it's not the one that's going to last. This has mostly happened in my life with a great amount of tears, some bathroom floors, some really crashing out and getting to a low point, but not going to the Paltrow. Of course. There was a piece in Vanity Fair just a few weeks ago, like August 2nd, just recently. Okay. This is by Kenzie Bryant, who's writing this up. And Gwyneth Paltrow has decided to write an essay. So in 2020, about when the marriage ended for her. This is on her 38th birthday. Back in 2010. So this is about four years prior to the conscious uncoupling. Okay. Oh, my. Gwyneth was in Tuscany <laughs> with the family. Like you do? And writes, My ex-husband and I were tucked away in the Tuscan countryside, on a hill in a beautiful cottage with a view of the forest. Fall was coming. The leaves were just loosening their grip on bright green. Inside, the cottage was perfectly appointed, in the way you dream of for a birthday trip. Cozy living room with a fireplace, kitchen table overflowing with spoils from the farm nearby. Peaches, tomatoes on the vine, basil, eggs. I don't recall when it happened exactly. I don't remember which day of the weekend it was or the time of day. But I knew, despite long walks and longer lions, big glasses of Barolo, and hands held, <laughs> My marriage was over. Oh my God. That's her 2020 thoughts. <laughs> How's your year going, everyone? I was just remembering this time. <laughs> when I knew in the Tuscan countryside that my marriage would not last. Well, cool, cool. She will continue on in the essay. Despite how much she and Chris Martin loved their children, they never quite settled into each other. She also guardedly paused at that murky time between the celebrity's decision to divorce and the announcement, saying that with the help of their therapist at the time, they tried to practice the so-called conscious uncouple about a year before making it public. So let's talk about conscious uncoupling. This is Kathleen Woodward Thomas. She has written a book called Conscious Uncoupling, The Five Steps to Living Happily Even After. Hmm. I'm not in any way criticizing mm -mm. approaches like this. I mean, there's like mediated divorce versus litigated. Div I mean, there there are a lot of ways that people try to have non-trashy divorces. It's the pretentiousness that it felt. So Kathleen Woodward Thomas actually does a great deal of training to divorce attorneys mm. to teach them this practice so everybody can get to... There's a lot coming on Patreon about this just because the industry of divorce is rife with let's make money oh yeah we can we haven't thought about that fork yet we can get like there's money to be made mm -hmm. in keeping the fighting going absolutely so one thing i thought was interesting is there are 
divorce attorneys that go to her to be trained to make this go faster? How can we all be generous and kind with each other to build a foundation for the kids? I get some really very interesting concepts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And part of this theory is really looking at yourself, your part, embracing the fear of failure that happens when a relationship fails. Because you do, you just feel like, oh, God, I'm the biggest failure fuck up that has ever happened. Breakups suck. They just do. But Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin are working through the process. In this Vanity Fair piece, Gwyneth continues. When we made a commitment to approach our separation this way, and about a year before we introduced the phase to the world, we put it to the test. It was hit and miss. We had great days and terrible days. Days where we couldn't stand each other, but forced ourselves to remember what we were aiming for. Somehow finding a way to smile and hug and take the kids out for brunch like we had planned. We had just moved to LA and were navigating a lot of change. Looking back, it was probably the most challenging year of my life. I felt ruled by fear. I worried about my children integrating into a new life, a new school, a new family structure. I worried about the world finding out that we were no longer together before we were ready to say it. And how to say it. What to say. All very identifiable feelings here. Their separation is announced in March of 2014 after 10 years of marriage. Divorces filed in April of 2015. Their marriage is final July of 2016. Now, what's the rest of the story? <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow has met her future husband, Brad Falchuk, back on the set of Glee back mm. in 2010. Oh, interesting. So while Gwyneth was consciously uncoupling from Chris Martin, so was Brad with his wife of a decade plus as well. I mean, do you mean that literally or metaphorically? Like, did they also do this process I, i'm thinking they probably shared the book mm -hmm. okay because they're everybody's sort of splitting up kind of at the same time right i'm not saying there was anything going on this is a very proper way to do it both realized these are not the marriages we want to be in got themselves free gwyneth and brad will make their romance premiere together in 2015, at Robert Downey Jr.'s 50th birthday party. Brad and Gwyneth do get married in 2018. Seems to be going well. He has kids, too. Everybody is very much in this super happy family mix. Break, everybody broke up well. All the kids are super well adjusted. This is huge. This is a strong recommend. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> now, like, the no, it, it genuinely does sound like a much preferred alternative to screaming fights in courtrooms and headlines about whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, this is not their kids. Yeah. Gwyneth's daughter is 16. She's driving. Hmm. Her son is 14. He's playing a lot of guitar. They've all been quarantined together. Mm -hmm. Like She's ever present in the media. Right? Because her lifestyle brand is raking in the dough business and the doing of appears sure. to be her new thing. She's goopy with wellness dollars. Again, so. not part of the trashy divorce. Chris Martin, nice guy TM. He's doing just fine. He's got $94 million in the bank and has been dating Dakota Johnson, oh. the daughter of Melanie Griffith and Don, Don Johnson, Johnson 
since 2017. Everybody's super happy in all of this. And if they're not, it's a terrific facade. But wait, I have the oddest thing about all of this swip swap. You ready? Going to Paltrow divorces Chris Martin, who's born on March the 2nd. Her new husband, Brad, he's a Pisces man too. His birthday's March 1st. Hmm. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not done. <laughs> Chris Martin divorces Gwyneth Paltrow Liebergal. Mm-hmm. September 27th is mm-hmm. her birthday. Dating Dakota Johnson, who is a Liebergal, whose birthday is October 4th. What? What? Oh my gosh. I'm just saying it is worth doing a forensic examination. Is it? On your love zodiac signs, people, it will teach you a whole lot. And that, my dear, is the absolutely non-trashy divorce of Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin. I would give it two trash cans, but they're both clean and fresh, like totally empty bins, never been rolled in straight off the truck. But they're like handcrafted by artisans somewhere. But the trash cans aren't even next to each other because they're consciously uncoupled and they're all empty. Two empty, clean trash cans that don't live next to each other. I'm coming back next week with something super trashy in the divorce department. Yeah, I feel like I don't need a shower, which feels like maybe we haven't done our job here. <laughs> so off brand this week. <laughs> so off brand. Um, yeah. But a good story. Gwyneth, we're going to need you to do something trashy now so that we can revisit you. So think on that. Well, and what's funny, because we did I think, switch I think it up. Vagina smelling day at the goop office. I know there's an article out there about it. Maybe that. But not part of the trashy divorce. No, but anyway. People have strong feelings. Yes. Yes, they do. You know what? Again, I will watch anything she's in. Compelling. Despite my strong feelings about her, like. Complicated. As a business owner and as a person. Like, I just. She's a great actress. She's a great actress, and I do feel like she puts herself out there in, like, she is ever-present. Like She's doing a lot of press, but she's famously private. If y'all are talking about vagina-smelling candle day in the goop office, you're not talking about my marriage. You're not talking about my kids. You're not talking about what's, you're not talking about the personal parts of me that I don't want shared Mm -hmm. with the world. So whatever those parts are, they are very undercover. You know, what I what I would extra hate is I bet that if I did five minutes of research into this, I would learn that Gwyneth Paltrow is also an amazing boss, right? Like, Our team loves her. Yeah. Yeah. What a nightmare person she is. <laughs> this is why I struggle with her. Like, the public facade is so weird, but it really does seem like she's a perfectly good stand-up human I don't know. It's strange. So many feelings. The feelings that she elicits. I came out of this really feeling entirely non-trashy and super good (laughs) about this divorce and a strong recommend for the concept of conscious uncoupling. Yeah. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. You're coming back with some tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Not not uplifting like yours. (laughs) See you on the flip. Back in a minute. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, 
but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, Stacey, you have this week the often requested story of a true American hero. I do. Um, on this show, we love pioneers, the people who, wittingly or not, blazed a trail for others to follow and succeeded against all odds. And today we have one of those stories. Oh, I love it. Dorothy Dandridge, yes. star of stage and screen, one of America's first black movie stars, and the first black woman to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. Really? As much as I intend to celebrate her achievements, her story is not a happy one. There was an abusive childhood, two unhappy marriages, a much-wanted daughter who suffered brain injuries during birth, and Dorothy's untimely death at the young, young age of 42. So, mm. so there's your warning. I wish this were a happy story. Writing it, I really wondered, you covered Josephine Baker recently, and I really wondered, like, if Dorothy Dandridge had gotten to Paris and just been like, this is the place. I wonder if she would have... How different of a life she yeah, had. Yeah, she might have had a happier life. But anyway, Dorothy Jean Dandridge was born on November 9th, 1922. She Scorpio. is a Scorpio. Yeah. 
She was the second daughter of Ruby and Cyril Dandridge in Cleveland, Ohio. Her mother had always dreamed of a career as a performer, and over time, Ruby's feelings toward the quiet Baptist minister she had married cooled. So a few months before Dorothy's birth, Ruby leaves Cyril, and then she starts moving around constantly to keep him from finding her and the and the girls. Oh my. Yeah, I don't know that I, I don't know quite what happened there, if he just gave up at some point. I'm not sure. Anyway, so there was toddler Vivian. I think she was 15 months when Dorothy was born. A few years go by. Ruby and the girls end up living with a female musician named Geneva Williams, Neva, with whom Ruby would have a years-long romantic relationship. Like, I think they may have been together for life. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, and Might she... Might that have been the reason why Ruby was hiding out from dad? I mean... <laughs> Surprise! It was the 20s, and I'm sure Ruby had a very surprising awakening somewhere along the way. Okay. So Neva would end up being the touring manager for the group that Ruby formed for her talented daughters, the Wonder Children. So these kids literally spent five years on the road, like like before they were 10 years old, touring the South on the Chitlin Circuit. And then, really? Yeah, up until the Great Depression hit and all of the the spots to play were nobody had any money anymore. So all of that went Fascinating. Away. Yeah. So like before they were 10, they were the family breadwinners. That is an immense amount of pressure for uh, a child. So much. And also Neva was physically abusive to them. Oh, no. And to make matters even worse in their psychological development, <sighs> Ruby told her daughters that their father hadn't wanted them. Oh. Which... Again, does not appear to be the case. Like, it really does seem like he was trying to find them for quite some time. I wish I could have told Ruby about this concept called conscious uncoupling. (laughs) But hey, if you want to make, you know, pliable kids with no path of escape and no sense of self-worth, congrats, Ruby, you're a peach. So Dorothy begins to experience intense stage fright, which I'm sure Neva was very understanding about. No, I'm kidding. Obviously, she she was absolutely terrible, Mm -hmm. and this was just a pressure cooker kind of stuff for, like, an eight-year-old or whatever. Like, they they damaged their kids. This is trauma. Yeah. 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 Just just broke them. So with the onset of the Depression, Ruby decided to cut to the chase and move the family, including Neva, out to Hollywood, thinking that the moment For the climate. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking that the moment was ripe for her to make it big in the movies. Oh, Wow. Weirdly, Ruby did end up working steadily for years in Hollywood. She has her own IMDb page. Uh, She was a dancer in King Kong. She was the maid on Father Knows Best for a season in the 1960s. Really? Like, plenty of little, like, I mean, Hollywood sucked at the time. And so if you were a black actor or actress, you got to play servants. You got to, you know, like it was... So that said she worked really steadily for a long we time we are going to talk a little bit about that on patreon this week we're going to talk about hattie mcdaniel yes and the filming and the oscars of gone with the wind yes. and some racial disparity in hollywood and she won the academy award for best supporting actress best correct? supporting that okay. is correct which was historic she was not even allowed in the building times did change okay so here is more or less where we're going to part with ruby's part in the story Just note, she would live until 1987. She died in a Los Angeles nursing home at the age of probably 87, although her birth year could be anywhere from 1899 to 1901. So, okay, ballpark. 
And she is buried beside her daughter at Forest Lawn Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. Mm. The girls thrived in California. They were finally able to go to school, for starters. And what? I am sad to report that when Dorothy first began attending classes at McKinley Junior High School, she was basically illiterate. Nobody taught her to read. No, apparently Neva's <sighs> talent manager skills did not include educating her charges. I'm sure Vivian also was way behind. And for a while, until she was able to catch up, Dorothy simply pushed through by memorizing everything that she thought she might need to know for class. She's a super talented and smart person. Like, she just hadn't been formally educated beyond what was needed for her to go out and do a show and make money. Yeah, your job is to get on stage. You don't need to read for that. (sighs) Wow. Yeah, it's, again, this childhood is just a disaster. So in 1934, so she's about 12 now, Along with a classmate named Etta Jones, the Wonder Children were relaunched as the Dandridge Sisters, and they really took off. This became a very high-profile act. Um, I saw it compared to uh, the Andrews Sisters. Really? Okay. Yeah, it was like three-part harmony. I mean, similar to like Gwyneth's right triple triple trio. trio mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's three-part harmony. They're beautiful, fresh-faced, and they got noticed in a big way. And you know, they're in Los Angeles, so. They start getting little roles in movies, like as a singing group again. By 1938, Dorothy's about 15. They get booked at the Cotton Club in New York. That's a huge deal. Huge deal. And there they met the extremely famous like song and dance, like tap act, the Nicholas Brothers. And while both Fayard and Harold took a shine to Dorothy, it was Harold, the younger of the brothers and just a year older than Dorothy herself, who would, in 1942, become husband numero uno. Okay, Harold. A little, about, a little bit about Harold. So Harold Lloyd Nicholas was born on March 27th, 1921. So he's uh, a... Aries. His big brother, Fayard, was seven years older. He was born October 20, 1914, and is a Libra. Not that that matters. I think they spent their early years in the South. Fayard was born in Alabama, Harold in North Carolina. They were the children of pit musicians and a playhouse orchestra. And when they were young, they moved to Philadelphia, I think, for more steady work. So, I mean, the boys grew up watching vaudeville shows while their parents played in the orchestra. And Harold was just 11 years old when he and Fayard became the feature act at the Cotton Club. 11 years old. Um, We're going to have clips of this at TrashyDivorces.com because their act is one of the most athletic feats you have ever seen. They mixed just ebullient tap and some gazelle-like ability to leap, but they would land in a split and then slide back to standing. Like, holy cats. Just giant beaming smiles on their face. Like, it, it is so much fun to watch. Uh, I was really, you walked in while I was watching some of these clips. It's a marvel. Go check those out. It's so much fun. They have this big step routine. Uh, anyway, we'll have clips. So, Harold and Dorothy, both by now extremely experienced performers, They strike up a little something-something, but life intervenes, and the Dandridge sisters are called to London, where they killed it, and the Nicholas brothers get called to Rio de Janeiro, where they killed it. Neva was still the group's manager, and apparently as the girls were growing into womanhood, she became very fixated on everyone's virginity. Oh, no. But because she was abusive, this meant that she wanted to physically examine Dorothy (gasps) at one point. No, nobody, no, 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 Yeah, which became an altercation that ultimately came to blows with Neva ending up on the ground and Dorothy standing her ground. And after this, Neva's control really ebbed. Good for Dorothy. 
So Dorothy, growing up and feeling her power for the first time, starts pursuing projects on her own. Good on her. Separate from the Dandridge sisters. And, you know, she's well aware that she's a black performer. She was also willing to take her enormous talent to Los Angeles auditions that were not envisioned for black performers and sometimes just blew up the color barrier that white producers may not have realized they were operating in. Interesting. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, there was explicit segregation, but there were also a lot of people who were not, like, explicitly segregationists. They just had a lack of imagination, really. So, yeah, she ended up in some productions that were sort of envisioned as all white reviews or whatever. And, but she was just super talented. And if you're not an explicit racist, there's no reason not to cast her. So they did. Awesome. Yeah. So in 1941, she appeared in the musical film Sun Valley Serenade, where she reunited with the Nicholas brothers and they performed Chattanooga Choo Choo mm. music by the Glenn Miller orchestra. This is part of an eight minute long sequence. They're like it the last. It really is good. Yeah. They're the last three minutes of it. This ended up nominated for an Oscar for Best Song and was awarded the first gold record for sales of 1.2 million. No, mm-hmm. really? Yep. Wow. 1941, the first gold record was awarded. All right. So another thing I want to share about Dorothy's early career is a thing called the Soundies. I had never heard of this. So basically around 1940, a company rolled out a small screen film player that I think would sit next to the jukebox and you know, pubs and whatever. Okay. It had a small projector inside and there was a mirror that reflected the image, the like the movie onto a little screen. And for 10 cents, you could watch a three minute long, in effect, music video. Really? Yes. And there was a, there was a loop of 10 of, you couldn't choose. You just, you got you just, surprised. You just kept putting your dime in and the next one would cue. The um, soundies. I've never heard of this either. The soundies. Yeah. These, these were like, big song and dance costume affairs and they were really racy i mean the the clips i saw of dorothy dandridge and them like she was in skin tight (laughs) like very just you know the type of like a racy costume that wouldn't be censored i mean we've seen the skirt of 16 bananas it's very similar it was very it was very much in the josephine baker huh um i mean there were more but like one of the clips was very much in that Uh, in that style. So these were around for basically like through 47. And then I think as TV rolled out, there was less need for them. And these soundies videos. Can you say beta? (laughs) So the soundies are valuable from an archival and music history standpoint, because a lot of black musicians appeared in them during this era when like Hollywood was not open to giving them roles. Sure. So like if you want video recordings of, I mean, Fats Waller, Duke Ellington, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Count Basie, Cab Calloway, Lena Horne, Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole, and like a bunch of other artists in the 40s. These old soundies, they've made the, like they've been released. They were all licensed out to various companies. And anyway, I had no idea this thing existed. So that is fantastic. There's your pub trivia thing. If you wanted to watch music videos in the 40s, they were called soundies. Okay, back to the main story. So all signs point to yes for young Dorothy, who is building a career on her own terms. On September 6th, 1942, at the tender age of 19, she walked down the aisle with Harold, her longtime boyfriend. Young love. 
and almost instantly became a golfing widow. No. The man was obsessed, and when he wasn't out golfing, he was often out carousing for days Uh -uh. at a time. So it wasn't the happiest of marriages from really very early on. Although for a minute, I think they both thought things would get better when Dorothy became pregnant in 1943. A baby will fix everything. A baby will fix everything. But Dorothy really wanted to, like, she really wanted a baby. Like, she she wanted she wanted a domestic life. She wanted, you know, a husband who loved her. She wanted kids. I don't think she really, again, show business had been forced onto her. And I think she really would have been quite happy to step back and Just mostly Lead a not. domestic life. Sure. September 2, 1943, Dorothy goes into labor. But I guess she had been through some false labors already. So Harold, like you do, leaves her at her sister-in-law's house and takes the only car they have to go play golf. No. After a while, it became clear that this was real labor. And so the sister-in-law is like, we need to get you to the hospital. But I think not unreasonably, at least in the short term, Dorothy's like, I I don't want to do this without Harold there. Like, let's just wait a little longer. Eventually, things progress to emergency-type level. Sister-in-law goes out to try to find a car in the neighborhood to drive her to the hospital. This takes additional time. By the time they get Dorothy to the hospital, the delivery was all kinds of messed up. They had to use forceps to deliver daughter Harolyn. There was a period of oxygen deprivation in the process. And Harolyn Lynn is how she was known. Um, She suffered significant and irreversible brain damage. Mm. They didn't really know this until she got to be two and three. And like she, she never developed the ability to speak. It's very sad. So there was extensive testing and imaging the physical structures. How do you ever forgive Harold after that? Well, she just blamed herself. Nope. She never, I don't think she ever blamed him. Those black eyed peas tasted fine. Harold. (laughs) Whew. Yeah, so her the structures, like the physical structures of her brain were misshapen by the time they were doing imaging when she was three. Oh, it's tragic. It was a crushing emotional blow to Dorothy. Again, she would have been quite content to just be Mrs. Harold Nicholas and raise a brood of beautiful and talented children. But that dream was not to be. So Lynn would be Dorothy's only child, and her marriage to Harold would erode in the aftermath of Lynn's diagnosis. Mm. Dorothy found private full-time care for Lynn. Like, doctors were like, put her in an institution and go on with your life. And she was just like, i not going to do that. Yeah. She was literally told to have more, like, have another. Like, get rid of that one and have, an- have another kid. Wow. The 40s and 50s, man. Brutal. Okay. So, private care obviously was quite expensive. And the cost of this would really set the direction of the rest of her life. In theory, she was not alone going through this ordeal, but in practice, Harold was coping in his own way, mostly by not being there. So by 1948... Big stretch for you there, Harold. That's a lot of emotional growth, buddy. 1948, he was absent, uh, and in September 1950, she finally filed for divorce. Another fun divorce fact, since we're talking about fun divorce facts in this episode, everything was terrible until like 10 minutes ago, and in the 1951 divorce decree, there was... No provision for Harold to support Lynn's medical needs at all. And obviously, also the earnings at that time, like he would have been making much more money than Dorothy for like... 
Why don't you just stand up and take care of your kid, <laughs> Harold? Oh, Harold. Yeah. Yeah. Things have improved a bit. I haven't seen him around, officer. I, I don't know where Harold is. <laughs> okay. So let's be clear, though. Dorothy tried to get help with coping with just this mountain of shit that she was suddenly... Again, she's still really young. She's right. in her 20s. Like, she goes into therapy, but at that time it meant psychiatry, which was very medication-focused. And this would not be great for her in the long term, particularly given her affection for champagne. Because of Lynn's extensive needs, Dorothy, again, would have been perfectly willing to walk, suddenly needs like a lot of money on the regular just to provide for her daughter. Yeah. So she turned heads in a big way in 1951 when she played Queen of the Ashuba in Tarzan's Peril which made the censors very uneasy because they were prudes. She had some provocative costumes. But that gave that created a lot of buzz for her. Like, it was in the papers that, you know, the people no one likes, the scolds, really don't like this. So suddenly, she's a very cool property. Still, it's not as though Hollywood was falling over itself to showcase talented black actors at the time. So she worked with jazz pianist and band leader Phil Moore to put together a show to return to headlining nightclubs. Okay. So they were an item for a while, and it seems like fairly happily, but things cooled when she did a stint in Vegas. Incidentally, she was the first black performer to be allowed to stay at the hotel where she was performing in segregated Las Vegas. Really? Yep. Although when she wanted to go swimming, they closed the pool. <gasps> Segregation, man. While here, she had a fling with Rat Packer Peter Lawford in really? the early 50s, probably before he married for money, a Kennedy. Um, yeah, he married Pat Kennedy April 1954. Okay. I only know that because they share the same wedding anniversary date as Dominic and Ellen Dunn. Interesting. Okay. So the two of them did discuss marriage. Really? But in the context of his saying, like, I'm not a trust fund baby and I am entirely dependent on the work the Rat Pack gives me for money. And if I well, marry... there wasn't a Rat Pack then yet. The Rat Pack didn't start until the early 60s. But Peter Lawford is absolutely breaking out and trying to get... Like, he's an actor. Okay. For sure. All right. So I may have, I may have like, heard a story it's... that conflated a few things. But he was basically saying, I'm not rich. He was not rich. And if I marry a black woman, I will not get parts anymore. That's... And you are not rich. And if you marry a white man, you will not be given parts anymore. I wonder if that caused the big rush because Peter and Patricia Kennedy really did court and marry very quickly. So interesting. Peter Lawford attends Dorothy's funeral. Um, he was scheduled to speak, but backed out at the last minute. Oh, and I, I do. I wonder if, in fact, he was like perhaps she was his great love. Feeling the feels. Yeah. But he needed he needed money. He needed Kennedy money. <laughs> I well, on the cachet. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, America, land of dreams. So in 1953, Hollywood lights up with news that director extraordinaire and tyrant Otto Preminger would be spearheading an African-American reimagining of the Oscar Hammerstein musical Carmen Jones based on the Bizet opera Carmen Dorothy understood right away that this was the role of a lifetime. lifetime. Yeah. But Preminger was not immediately taken with her. Like, he'd seen some of her other work where she was 
pretty toned down. He needed a vixen. And so she got together with some makeup artists from Max Factor. She Interesting. found what was described as the trashiest blouse in her wardrobe and pulled it down over one shoulder or like off of one shoulder. And she said she sort of rolled around like a minx for a while. And then she heads over. Sounds like a Tuesday at our house. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so then she heads back to uh, to Otto's office in the evening and, like, you know, kicks the door in like you do. And, uh, <laughs> I just made that up. Um, With your kitten boots. But, I mean, she walks in, like... Owning I mean, it. Look, the, she, the word she used to describe this persona uh, was horror, right? And, like, we don't tend to use that word on the podcast. She walks in, and Otto Preminger reportedly goes, Carmen! Wow. So she got the parts. Okay. Starred opposite young Harry Belafonte, who, yeah. wow, was hot. I just did not realize yeah, no, he's super hot. been an old man in my life. All right. Gigantic hit. I mean, this thing is humongous. It turned Dorothy into perhaps Hollywood's first African-American sex symbol, like for consideration by white audiences. Sure. Like this was a no-no. This had never been something that was allowed, but... She lands the cover of Life magazine that really? fall. Mm-hmm. First black woman to get the cover. When she was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress for the role in the at the 1955 awards, she shared the category with Grace Kelly, Audrey Hepburn, Judy Garland, and Jane Wyman. Wow. Yeah. Yep. She was in New York opening at the Waldorf. Anyway, she was in New York working a nightclub. Um, so it was silent. She gave an award that night, too. Grace Kelly won for A Country Girl. Is that what it's called? But Dorothy's star was flying. I mean, it all everything looks... She's on top. Everything looked looks brilliant good. for her. 20th Century Fox was like, we have a plan for you. So they signed her to a three-picture deal. 75 grand for each. Okay. Well, that sure takes care of Lynn's hospital bills. Right. Yeah. And they really... they. They were working on this plan to build Dorothy Dandridge into America's first black screen icon. But. Oh, no. Oh, no is correct. During the filming of Carmen Jones, she and Otto Preminger. Nope. The tyrant of Hollywood. Oh, no. Had begun an affair. Yikes. So as the studio was strategizing with her and like coming up with roles that would grow her profile and, you know, just get her. I don't know. Just keep her in front of audiences in a really important way. He is whispering in her, her ear that she's now an international superstar and that she should only accept leading roles. So she starts turning down parts on his advice. Mm. And eventually the studio stops offering them. So, like, she dumps Otto after a few years, but, like, here's the timeline. 54, she stars in a hit movie. 55, she's nominated for an Academy Award for the role. And then she disappears for years. All right, so she does return in Island in the Sun in 1957. Sit on down, Otto. I've made a nice meal for you. <sighs> Dude, I'm mad. I'm mad that women continually get fucked over by men. It's, yeah, obviously she could have made different choices here, but I don't know. I guess you think, well, Otto Preminger is my ally and he's not going to do me wrong. Well, he, de- he did. He did her wrong. Right. <laughs> and he kept doing her wrong. Yeah. We'll get to that. All right, so oh, no. 
In Island in the Sun, she again breaks the color barrier by playing a West Indian shop clerk in a relationship with a white man. This was so fraught. Like, the censors were all over this. They couldn't kiss on the lips. He was not allowed to tell, like, the white actor that she was starring with could not tell her that he loved her. Like, they finagled it so he says something like, you know that I'm in love with you or something. But he, he could never say I love you on screen to a woman of color. Interesting. Yeah. Apartheid, man. It screws up your art. Let's just say that. So it was controversial. It was heavily edited by the censors, but it was a big success, too. So she's back. Woo! There were certainly other movies, but she suffered another real psychic wound in 1958 when she signed on with Samuel Goldwyn to make Porgy and Bess. This decision was extremely controversial among black moviegoers because of the prominent stereotypes of black Southern life in the show. Absolutely. Sidney Poitier co-starred with her. I think they both regretted, but she regretted it for myriad reasons that he didn't. I think things started well enough on set, but the original director left and was replaced with none other than Otto Preminger. Oh, no. Who appears to have taken the opportunity to torture the woman who scorned him. Like, this production dragged on. It was way over time and budget. What a dick. He criticized her mercilessly. Like, there was no performance she could give that he considered good. Like, so I think by the end of this production, she really just did not know up or down for quite a while. Like, her self-esteem was shot. He just... That is rotten. Wrecked her for a time. So tragically, this period of, of like serious onset abuse uh, led her to her second marriage <laughs> okay. to uh, a club owner named Jack Dennison on June 22nd, 1959. Apparently, she believed he was a successful businessman, but on their wedding night, he <gasps> explained that no, actually, he was really deeply in debt and might lose his club. Oh, this my. This led to her performing there to try to save it, which she felt really humiliated by. And to make everything better, he also got violent with her when it suited him. <gasps> no. So they divorced in 1962. No. No. And even more fun, while sorting all of their financial affairs, Dorothy learned that her money managers had stolen a lot of her money while also failing to pay her taxes. Shit. All told, she was out 150 k to the theft <gasps> and owed the government another $139,000. Oh, no. That is... Horrible. Dorothy Dandridge, age 40, having been working in show business since she was like three, has to sell her house. And after decades of working so hard, she could no longer pay to keep Lynn in private care. Ah. So she was forced to make her a ward of the state and place her in the Camarillo State Hospital in Camarillo, Camarillo, California. While she herself moved into a tiny apartment in West Hollywood. Mm. Really very, very sad. So sad. Apparently, after all of this, she did, uh, like, her manager had kind of been expelled by the second husband. And so she she rekindled her friendship with her previous manager. He became her manager again. He helped her at least get more sober. I don't know if she ever got sober sober, but... She was taking a lot of pills and drinking heavily right. in this period of her life. I can't imagine what you'd want to hide out from. Right. Why substance misuse would be a exactly. alternative to... Exactly. Yeah. 
That's tough. So there were definitely things in the works. She had signed on to do a couple movies in Mexico. I think she had signed to write an autobiography. But Dorothy Dandridge died on September 8th, 1965, um, probably of an accidental overdose. It's like L.A. County and L.A. City came to different views because she had broken her foot a few days earlier. And so when that happens, you can get leakage of fat into your bloodstream, which can cause really like systemic... Like, it, it can kill you. It's rare, sure. but it happens. She had a history of overdosing on prescription medications. Oh, no. Which she always attributed to carelessness rather than an attempt at suicide. I mean, there's a really wonderful A&E biography profile of her from the late 90s that we'll link in the show notes. And I I feel like the people who loved her really felt like there was some intentionality to this one. Wow. Like, her apartment was covered in notes, right? Like, it was like she was prepping. She had given her manager a note, like, in the event of my death note. I don't know what was going on in her mind. Like, the people around her were very worried about her at this point in her life. But, yeah, after she didn't respond to a bunch of phone calls, the manager, Earl Mills, uh, used a crowbar to break into her apartment Mm. and discovered her freshly showered, makeup on, Naked, head in her arms, um, on the floor, dead. Uh. Okay. Harold, who really could have been better, he lived to the ripe old age of 79, passed away in July of 2000. He and his big brother, Fayard, who actually outlived him by six years, they were both interviewed in the biography piece. And Harold really took all the blame for messing up the marriage. He said he was just too young to be the man that he wanted to be then. I was really struck, though, by the oddity of being interviewed about your first wife, like, half a century after you broke up. Yeah, you get right? a lot of time to revisionist history, that shit. You do. But, I mean, he he blamed himself uh, for that one. We covered Halle Berry's split from Dave Justice back in season five. And it's worth noting that Halle has played a big role in, like, reviving Dorothy Dandridge's prominence. She played her in 1999's Introducing Dorothy Dandridge... And I think she feels a real spiritual connection to her story, starting with being born in the same hospital in Cleveland. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So she's also in the biography profile. And she makes the point that stars like Whitney Houston, Jada Pinkett, and herself could not have the careers they've had had Dorothy Dandridge not continually stepped up to put her talent into the service of pushing past idiotic barriers of America's and Hollywood's apartheid regime. Um, I will let Dorothy Dandridge have the last word. Excellent. As she is, from her uh, posthumously published autobiography, considering the ways that racism always impacted how Hollywood could deploy her talent. Quote, Whore roles were there, of course. America was not geared to make me into a Liz Taylor, a Monroe, a Gardner. My sex symbolism was as a wanton, a prostitute, not as a woman seeking love and a husband the same as other women. I had realized everything except the limitations naturally placed upon me through being a Negro. Wow. Apartheid is bad. I'm not going to give this trash cans. Okay. That's fair. Feels disrespectful. I respect that decision. But American hero. Dorothy Dandridge. Tragic life. Tragic. Yeah. I do kind of wish she had gotten to Paris. It could have made a difference. Yeah. 
Thanks, Stacy. I know you and I switched it up this week. That was a really good story. <laughs> Thank you. I normally do old school and you do new school. And we did a little... We flip-flopped. A little flip-flop this week. A little switch it up. It's been fun to hear you complain about basically Gwyneth Paltrow being boring all week, though. <laughs> but like in the sweetest possible way. Well, there's no lack of sources when you're covering people who lived 100 years ago. Right. Because all the trash is out. Everybody's talked. Everybody's dead. Everybody's put out their... I didn't tell this story for 50 years, but I'm about to die and it's going to release this book when yeah. I'm done. Uh, there's so much of a different sort of spider web of trash candy that you can weave. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this week of Trashy Divorces. If you need more Trashy Divorces, join us on Patreon. 358 episodes Seriously? over there. Yeah, I looked this morning. God, we've been busy. So busy. We're going to be talking about all kinds of good stuff this week as well. Y'all are the very best. We can't wait to see you next week again. I'm bringing double trash next week for the show. I mean, I think you owe, after this very clean I thing owe you double, did, like, triple yeah, trash. You, you owe I, the listeners. Triple trio trash <laughs> next week. Coming for you on Trashy Divorces. We can't wait to see you next Sunday. Catch us on Patreon in the meantime. Keep your hands clean. Wash them. Keep your masks on. Wear them. Keep your hearts trashy. Do that. <laughs> Cheers, friends. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Bye, everyone. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at TrashyDivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at TrashyDivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at Patreon.com slash TrashyDivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all